Please turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of Romans, chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, and I'll read beginning at verse 17 down through the end of the chapter. Verse 17, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, not of, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, and therefore I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, as and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. In verses 25 through verse 27, Paul closes this letter with this doxology, which is a hymn of praise and glory to God. The longest of all Paul's doxologies, the longest doxology in the entire New Testament, and one that is most uplifting, encouraging as well. The book of Romans was Paul's greatest theological treatise. He opens up the great doctrines of the gospel in a fullness that is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. He teaches us things of the spiritual life, the Christian life, and how we are to conduct ourselves in all the duties of the Christian life. And what we learn here in this great doxology is that knowledge leads to worship, and theology ends in doxology. Some would say those things are opposed to one another, but the true knowledge of God should always bring us to worship, and great theology should bring us to doxology. Perhaps the summary of the entire book of Romans can be stated in this way that God, that Paul here, he humbles human pride and he exalts the glory of God. 
He shows man's utter helplessness and inability to accomplish anything for his own salvation, and he shows the complete sufficiency of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so it is fitting that this letter should end with this great doxology which exalts the glory of God in our salvation. The, the, the doxology really begins in the beginning of verse 25, where he says, Now to him, and then we may skip down to the end of verse 27, be the glory forever. Amen. That is the doxology. Now to him be the glory forever. Amen. And everything in between in these different phrases are the reasons for the glory and praise of God. Two attributes of God are central in this doxology, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We see in the beginning of verse 25, the power of God spoken of. And then at the end, down in verse 27, the wisdom of God spoken of as well. We begin in verse 25. He says, now to him who is able. He means to him who is capable. To him who has the ability, the strength the power to do something. It is the word, it is the word dynamos, dunamos in the Greek. And it is translated in the King James, now to him that is of the power. And that's the translation that I will use tonight. To him, to him who has the power to establish you according to my gospel. The word establish here means to strengthen in the truths of the gospel to make them firm in the ways of the gospel so that they are so fixed and settled in their faith, so stable in their faith. We might say that their feet are so cemented into the truths of Christ in the gospel that no matter what happens to them, they will never be moved. They will never be deceived or drawn aside from the ways of Christ in the gospel. This was Paul's desire back in chapter 1 and verse 11, where he said that I wish to depart to impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. And so it is fitting that now he closes and he says here, he speaks of this again, that you may be established in the gospel. But here Paul recognizes in verse 25 that only God has the power to establish us in the faith of the gospel. Now to him who has the power to establish you in the gospel, according to my gospel, the power of God is the only thing that can enable us to continue and to persevere to the end of life in the things of God. In the earlier chapters of this letter, Paul made it very clear that we have no power in ourselves to bring ourselves into the faith. But now as the letter comes to a close, he makes it equally clear that we have no power in ourselves to continue in the faith. The only one who can establish us to make us firm in the gospel is the power of the living God. We are established in the gospel 
And the gospel is also the means by which this establishment, our establishment in it, comes to pass. Paul has spoken of the power of God in the gospel. Previously, back in Romans 1 in verse 16, he said that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And that's what the gospel becomes to everyone who believes in the gospel In Jesus Christ, it becomes to us the power of God to our salvation. A very strange thing to the world around us. Because all they see in the Bible are words upon the page and they appear to be dead words to them. But there is no other book like the Bible because the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power, inspired these words And now the same Holy Spirit uses these words to continue and carry on his great work of salvation in us. To bring us to faith, to sanctify us, to transform us into the likeness of Christ. So the gospel becomes the power of God to our salvation. A kind of secret power. We might call it a stealth a stealth power that the world cannot see. There is nothing in all the world that is more powerful than the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel brings us into new birth. The gospel calls us out of darkness into the light of Christ. The gospel transforms our minds The gospel produces holiness in us. There is nothing that is more powerful in all the world than the gospel. The Roman Christians to whom Paul wrote, as we mentioned this morning, very soon they were to be in great trials because Nero the emperor was to begin a great persecution upon them. The things that Paul wrote of back in Romans chapter 8, Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, those things were soon to come upon them. And so where would they find the strength to endure such things? And who could keep them faithful to the gospel to the end? The answer, the only answer is found here in the beginning of verse 25. Now to him who has the power to establish you, In the gospel, according to my gospel. The power to guard us to the end. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We could turn to that passage in the very next. We turn over one page in our Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul speaks of the power of God again here in verse 18. He says, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So God uses what appears to men to be the weakest of all things, the word of the cross. The word of the cross becomes the means of him accomplishing his great work of salvation so that all the work, all the glory would go to him in the salvation of lost sinners. Even we who believe 
perhaps do not think upon this as we should. But we must remember that the power of God is infinite. He is the omnipotent God, the God of all might, who does his will in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, and there is nothing that can stop his hands. And once God decides, once he determines what his purpose will be, then the only thing that remains is what will be the means by which he will accomplish that great purpose. And his omnipotence is such that he can use the weakest of means to accomplish the work of greatest power. He does not need things that appear powerful in the eyes of men to accomplish his works. He can use the weakest of things to accomplish works of omnipotent power. That's what he did in the first creation. He determined there would be a heavens and an earth. And what was the means by which he brought the whole vast universe into being? It was his word. What seems to men to be so weak. God speaks and it was done. And the heavens and the earth and everything in them was created by the word of his power. And the rest of the Bible looks back in wonder and awe that the great God simply speaks and it is done and the whole universe came into being. The same thing is true now in his new creation. What will be the means by which he brings out of the ruin of this world a new creation? It will be the word of his power as well. The written word of the gospel which seems so weak to men, but it becomes the power, the omnipotent power of God to our salvation. The word of the cross is the power of God to our salvation. The cross itself seems to be the most marvelous disaster in the history of the world. A man claiming to be the savior of the world. Dies in a bloody crucifixion. What could be weaker than a man suffering death upon a cross? The grandest catastrophe ever. The most horrible calamity the world has ever seen. But God is always confounding the wisdom of men and what the world thinks is power and he uses the weakest of things to demonstrate his infinite power the gospel is the power of God to our salvation and we ourselves are the recipients of that power we who believe we have come to know that power and we continue to experience it as the Holy Spirit continues to use the word to transform our minds and to make us more like Christ. Back in Romans chapter 16 and verse 25, when Paul calls the gospel, my gospel, who is able, who has the power to establish you according to my gospel, he does not call it my gospel because it originated or came from him, 
because it was by a revelation that the gospel came to him when he was commissioned as an apostle. But he says, my gospel. He speaks of the only true gospel that can save us. There were many gospels, many false gospels in Paul's day. As there are many false gospels today that deviate in some way. In some dangerous way very often. And Paul reminds them, he has to tell them back in verse 17 and 18, as we read earlier, that they should guard themselves against these contrary teachings that are against what he taught them. But who ultimately could keep them from deception and the harm that Satan could bring upon them? It is God himself, he says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Then Paul continues In verse 25 now, with various expressions to further explain more about the gospel, the next thing he says in verse 25 is he calls it the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. It is the preaching of Jesus Christ. Preaching has always been the central means of God spreading his gospel. In the ancient world, Enoch and Noah were preachers of righteousness. Moses and the Old Testament prophets, they were all preachers. John the Baptist, Jesus himself came preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. The apostles turned the world upside down by preaching. So there has always been preaching, but the preaching is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the preaching of the person of Christ This is what Paul said back in the beginning of the letter. He was called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, he said, concerning his son. That's what the gospel is always concerning, concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. So all the strands of truth come together in the one person of Christ. Paul could say to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. He said to the Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is why when Jesus met the two men on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So the gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ. When we speak of Christ here, the preaching of Christ, we mean Christ, the way of salvation, the only way, the cross, the only way for us to be saved. But we also mean that Christ, Christ on the cross, is the preeminent example of the self-denial that is required in the life of the Christian. So Christ becomes both the way back to God, and he becomes the example for us to follow along that way, the preaching of Jesus Christ. Then Paul says at the end of verse 25, he says, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages, but now is manifested and 
by the scriptures of the prophets. A mystery in the Bible. It's not some riddle that we cannot understand. A mystery in the Bible is something that was once concealed, hidden, and now later it becomes revealed. And that is what is taking place, what has taken place in regard to so many of the truths of the gospel. They were kept secret for long ages through the Old Testament period. Not in an absolute sense, but in a relative sense until they were finally revealed and made manifest at the time of Christ. The gospel has always been preached from the beginning of the world. By the scriptures of the prophets, he mentions in verse 26. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, Paul says. The gospel was known in the Old Testament scriptures in the sacrifices, in the ceremonial law, in the temple, in the priesthood. All of these things, they were shadows of the good things that would come in the gospel. The Old Testament saints, they had enough that they could believe for their salvation. But they always looked dimly, darkly, through a, a dark glass from a great distance to the coming of Christ. The things of the gospel were kept secret until the fullness of time. When God sent forth his son into the world, then at the end of verse 25, as he says, there was this revelation. There was this revelation of the mystery, the things that had been kept secret for long ages. Now they became manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. The revelation means that there was this unveiling of Christ. This lifting of the darkness so that men could see clearly. The word revelation is apocalypse. It is the disclosure of things that are hidden. He says, but now, in verse 26, in the time of Christ, it is manifested, it is made known, it is displayed to all. We may think of the idea of a great statue. And the statue is covered with a dark veil over it until the day of its unveiling. And men can see the outline of it. And they can view its shape and some of its contours. And they see the shadow of it. But they cannot see it clearly at all. But then when the day of its revealing comes, the veil is suddenly lifted. And there the figure stands in the full light of day. And men can see clearly who it is. And all the features and the glory of his person. That's what happened. The mystery of Christ kept secret for long ages was suddenly revealed in the coming of Jesus. And he was made manifest to us in the gospel. All the glory that belonged to him was suddenly made known to us in ways that the Old Testament saints could never see before. The image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, all the fullness of the deity was in him in bodily form. 
John said, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the glory of Christ was revealed and manifested in his coming. We who live in the light of the gospel, we sometimes fail to appreciate how dark the shadows of the Old Testament really were. And things that were mysteries then are manifest and clear to us today. So many of those prophecies of the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints could not understand. How could the Messiah be born of a virgin, a son born of a virgin, and yet he be Emmanuel, God with us? How could a son be given to us and the government would rest upon his shoulders? How could he be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and yet live and see his offspring and a great kingdom to be given to him, an everlasting kingdom? All of these things were mysteries until the veil was lifted and it was all revealed in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he means there in that phrase. But now it is manifested to us in the times of the gospel. And I would say that it is not just that we have more revelation in the New Testament, but also that we have a fuller measure of the Holy Spirit because all of our understanding, even of the scriptures, is only by the light of the Holy Spirit. So we have the scriptures and we have the Spirit to come and teach us these things. But now Paul focuses in the second half of verse 26 on one of the great mysteries of the Old Testament scriptures that the gospel was to go to all the nations. He says, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known, this gospel has now been made known to all the nations The Jews, they thought salvation was only for them. The apostles themselves even found it difficult to understand this, that salvation was always meant to go to all the nations. It was part of the mystery that was kept secret. All the way back in Genesis, God promised to Abraham that in your seed, the Messiah, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He said to Abraham, he said, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and by your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God said in Isaiah chapter 42, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom is all my delight. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He said, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you a light of the nations so my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So that was part of the great mystery that was kept secret for long ages, that when the Christ came, the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. One of the refrains of the book of Psalms and in the prophets as well, is that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. Salvation going to all the nations. And then Christ comes with his great commission. All authority and power has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. And he says, go therefore into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the power of that great commission comes on the day of Pentecost. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So this is by the commandment of the eternal God. The eternal God, the everlasting God, comes into time and he gives his commandment that his gospel, the gospel of his son, is to go to the ends of the earth. We preach the gospel here by the commandment and by the authority of God behind it. He is calling all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the one whom he has appointed and he has raised him from the dead. And so it is our great duty and it is our privilege as well to have our part in the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the commandment of the eternal God. And then the result, what is is the result of the gospel going to all the nations? What does it do when it goes to all the nations? The answer is found at the end of verse 26, leading to the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Two things we may take from that, leading to the obedience of faith. In other words, we obey God's command to believe in the Lord Jesus. And also the obedience of faith, the obedience that faith produces. Faith always produces obedience to Christ and his commandments. So now the doxology comes to its close In verse 27, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. That phrase in the beginning of verse 27, to the only wise God, is three words in the Greek language, and each of those three words rhymes with the other. The only wise God, only mono, wise, sopho, God, Theo, monosopho, Theo, the only wise God. He is the only God. There is no other God. He sits above all others. He is exalted in his majesty and glory. There is no other one like him. He is the only God and he is the only wise God. Wise in all his works of creation wise in all of his works of providence and everything that he does. He is wise in all things. Infinite wisdom belongs to him. But Paul here in this phrase, he is celebrating the wisdom of God in the gospel of salvation. And God's wisdom comes to its highest pinnacle of glory 
in the way in which he has saved lost sinners in this world. The great dilemma has always been, how can sinful men be right with a holy God? That's the great question. If we were to take the wisest men in all the history of the world and put them into a room for a thousand years, they could never devise a way in which sinful men could be right with God in heaven. The only God, the only wise God, is the only one who has the wisdom to find a way for lost and guilty sinners to be saved and brought into his heaven forever. And that really is what Paul has been talking about through so much of this gospel. And we'll take a few minutes to look at a few verses. We turn back to Romans chapter 1. Romans Chapter 1, we scan a few verses to see the great wisdom of God in our salvation. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He speaks here of all men by nature, that the wrath of God hangs over us and this terrible judgment ready to fall upon us. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against men. We look over to chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6. He says in verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So there is a day of wrath that is coming upon this world. Right now there are little drops of wrath falling from heaven upon men in this world. When that day comes, the dam will break and the wrath of God will be revealed. It will be a day of salvation for his people, but for sinners it will be a day of wrath against them. So this is the awful plight of all of us by nature that we are under wrath and we are headed to eternal wrath. And not only that, but in chapter 3, Paul tells us that there is nothing we can do to ever accomplish our and earn our salvation. In chapter 3, in verses 10, he says, There is none righteous, not even one. In verse 12, he says, All have turned aside together, they have become useless. There is not there is none who does good, not even one. And down in verse 20, he says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So here is the summary of everything that Paul has been saying in these early chapters. That all of us by nature, we are guilty. We are condemned because of our sins under the wrath of God and headed for an eternal destruction. And there is nothing that we can do to accomplish any favor, earn any merit for our salvation. What shall we do? What will happen to us? And how can we ever find acceptance with the great and holy God? 
In heaven, the justice of God cries out against us. Transgressors must face punishment. The soul that sins must die. The justice of God cries against us. But the mercy and the love of God cries out as well for forgiveness and pardon. How can the justice and the mercy of God both be satisfied at the same time? They seem so opposed to one another. If justice, if justice is satisfied, we will all perish. And there will be no mercy. If mercy is satisfied, Where will the justice of God be? And how will justice be satisfied? How can justice and mercy be satisfied at the same time? The infinite wisdom of God says, this is what I will do. I will send my beloved son into the world in an incarnation. And he, as a man, the second person of the Trinity, will come down from heaven. And as a man, he will pay the penalty of the justice of God against sinners. He will pay it in the death of a cross. He will give himself a propitiation to remove all of my judgment against sinners. And by his death upon the cross, I will be able to pardon them and show mercy upon them. My justice will be satisfied. My mercy will flow down upon sinners. My son will be a curse so that sinners can be blessed. So at the cross, the justice and the mercy of God come together. And when the cross is accomplished, the justice of God says, I am satisfied. And there is nothing more that I can ever ask. All the justice of God has been fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. This is wisdom. This is unfathomable wisdom. An incarnation of the Son of God. That the Son of God becomes man in the womb of a virgin that he lives a perfect life, that he dies upon a cross to remove the judgment of God. This is infinite wisdom that only God could conceive. We must be cleansed from our sins if we would stand before God. God says, I will cleanse them in the blood of my Son. And the cleansing of the blood of Jesus is a cleansing that is so deep and thorough. It is as if we have never sinned in his sight. We are as white as snow when we are washed in the blood of Jesus. We must have righteous robes to stand in his presence. God says, this is what I will do. I will make a righteousness for them. It will be the righteousness of my beloved son. 
It will be a righteousness that is is so full, complete, and perfect that it will be given to them and it will be as if they have fulfilled every aspect of my law all of their entire lives. I will justify them by his blood and by his righteousness. But they are poor and helpless sinners who love their sins, who are the slaves of sins, and they can never come of themselves. God says, I will give them a new heart, and I will put my spirit within them, and I will give them a new birth, and they will come to me and my salvation. Poor, helpless, and bankrupt sinners. I will give this righteousness to them, he says, freely, without any cost, without any money. And all they must do is look to my beloved son, and I will give them this righteousness, and I will cleanse them of all their sins, and they will be saved. I know how helpless they are, God says. I know how utterly weak they are. They can do nothing. All they must do is look. And all the righteousness and grace of Christ will be given to them freely. That's all you must do to be saved. It's look to Jesus and believe. And you shall be forgiven of all your sins. We turn over to chapter 5 of the, the book of Romans. Verse 8 through 10, he says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by him, by his life. He, Paul, in verse 9, he looks back to what has happened in the past. Having been justified by faith and having peace with God, as he says in verse 1, having been justified by his blood in the past, this, what does this mean for our future? It means that we shall with certainty be saved from the wrath of God that will come through him. So Paul has told us of the great danger back in the earlier chapters of the wrath of God, and here he tells us of the only way of safety by the blood of Christ. We can turn over to chapter 8. In chapter 8 and verse 33. He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? And with the righteousness of Christ given to us, there is no one who can ever bring a single charge of any sin against us. Who could possibly charge God's elect? God justified them. Who will ever condemn them? It is impossible. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ, cleansed by his blood, we can stand with safety and peace, rejoicing even in the presence 
of the burning holiness and justice of God by the righteousness of his dear beloved son. All of this is the wisdom of God that is displayed for us in the gospel. And so as we come to this doxology in chapter 16, and Paul closes in the last verse, he is compelled to remember all the wisdom of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He remembered this as well back in chapter 11 and verse 33. He said, oh, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And so here he celebrates it once again to the only wise God and his wisdom that is displayed in salvation through Jesus Christ to the, be the glory, he says, forever. Amen. There should be wonder. There should be praise and adoration and thanksgiving over all that the wisdom of God has done for us as poor lost sinners. Now to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we marvel at what you have accomplished for us. And we cannot even begin to comprehend the glory of everything that you have done through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would have great mercy upon us, that you would open our eyes, that we might see more of his glory, and that we might love him and obey him and walk with him. Lord, hear us now tonight. Have great mercy upon us. Bless the elements of the Lord's Supper as we partake and give us thoughts that honor and glorify and remember our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you now and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.